hear God's word this morning from Romans chapter 8, verses 5 to 11. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to, be set, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God, God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. This is the word of the Lord. All right, kids age 5 to 5th grade can line up at the door, and I'll pray for you and us. The rest of you can be seated. God, we do pray as uh, we uh, hear your word this morning, these little ones and us, God, that you would be present to us through your word, that we would know that the Spirit is in us, that we would have life in him, these littles and us and that we would live cons- consequently in the realm of your spirit. So we, help, we pray that your word would do that work in us this morning. That call us back, usher us back into the realm of the spirit. Call us there for the first time. Renew us, God, by your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great time, kids. We'll see you. <clears throat> for the rest of us, young teenage theologians as well as adults, Um, Have you ever visited another country? When you visited there, what was that experience like? What were some of the cultural differences that were in place or that you noticed right offhand when you came in? There might have been even preparation. You might have been learning as you go to prepare you for going about what that place was like so that you were ready for some of those differences. You might not have been prepared. And you might have got there and then experienced what's called culture shock, like a little you know, discombobulation because that culture is so different from your own. Or maybe when you left that culture that you were in in that place and then you came home, you experienced culture shock. I spent some time in China, and I'll never forget like some of the differences, the things that were a little discombobulating of being in that place, in that country, like noodles for breakfast was like a new thing for me. Like one of the best breakfast places in the little town that I was in was a noodle place, and everybody went there in the morning to have noodles for breakfast. They would eat anything, by the way. Insects, wasabi popsicles, stinky tofu, that was just part of the normal diet, and I wanted no part of that normal diet, and so that was shocking for me. They worked seven days a week, no days off, even on Sundays. They pottied in squatty potties. They took buses everywhere, and in those buses, you had to fight for your seat on the bus, and when it came to TV, CTV was not great entertainment television. Now, being in that world was a different kind of realm and world. It was 
There was different practices. There was different authorities. It was a different location. And as Americans, oftentimes what we would do in China is we gathered together and found comfort within our sameness. There was this gathering where we would practice different things than what the culture around us was practicing and, pract- and were under a different authority than what the rest of the culture was, even while we were still in China and in that country. As we come into Romans 8, I want to, you to keep that in mind this morning. Kids, I want you to talk to your parents about the time they visited a different country and if they had culture shock, and I want you to listen this morning about the two realms that Paul says we could be placed in. The guiding image in Paul, uh, in Romans 8, 5 through 11, is this idea of two realms, two authorities, two governing powers, and those two powers are spirit or flesh. There's two realms, two authorities, two governing uh, powers, and it is either spirit or flesh. Josh, I don't think I can control the clicker. You are either in the realm of the spirit or the realm of the flesh. Now, what's confusing for us as we start here this morning is we often think about the flesh as, a, as material. It's the material side of life. It's our baser instincts, our bodily needs. And in one sense, that's true. In fact, Paul will even use flesh in that sort of way, but that's not how he's using it here. Here he is using it to describe our nature in rebellion against God. If we are under the realm of the flesh, we are under a place where the authority is not God, but self. And the practices in this realm don't glorify God as God, but glorify the self. Their aiming point is self and not God. That's what it means to be in the realm of the flesh. And because this is a realm of rebellion, the realm of self, in this realm, Paul will say there is corruptibility. There is mortality. Things wear out and people wear out. And the term, at least here in this context, Flesh is a negative term, a way of living that is subject to that decay, to that wearing out, a a way of living that does not produce life, but instead produces death. Now, the other realm is the realm of the spirit. Now, spirit here isn't some ideal self or noble idea. It isn't an impersonal force or just being spiritual. Our culture, our world, we use the term spiritual to describe lots of those kind of things. That's not what Paul is describing for us here. It is God, his own spirit, the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. It is the realm of God, the Holy Spirit. And the life that proceeds from the Father and the Son is the gift of the Holy Spirit. Through this Spirit, God is giving as gifts all the effects and benefits of Christ to believers. God is uniting himself to Christians, binding himself to them through the Spirit. And so the realm of Spirit is to live into that binding, to live into that, like I said, all throughout Romans, that location of being in Christ. You have been taken out of this location and been put into another location. You've been taken out of the realm of the flesh and been placed into the realm of the Spirit. Now, as we talked about last time, he calls 
us, the church, those of us who are in Christ, to walk in the Spirit and not in the flesh. Now remember walk. At the end of verse 4, here in Romans 8, Paul says, we who walk not according to the flesh, but the Spirit. To walk is to cut a path. To wear down, pat down the ground in the realm of the Spirit and not the realm of the flesh. And so that's where we're going to spend our rest of our time together today is how can we tell the difference between life in the flesh, living in the realm of Adam, and that's our sin nature, and living in the realm of the Spirit, the realm of Jesus. All right, so verse 5, for those who live according to the flesh, I think it's the next slide, Josh, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. I, I say Siri and my watch talks back to me. It's like the fourth time that that's happened. And it, it misunderstands whatever I just said. I don't know what I just said, but it sounded like Siri and so it started talking back to me. So I, I apologize. Back to verse 5. What is their mind focused on? Thinking about. What occupies thinking energy? You know, if you've heard of the term mindset, setting your mind onto something, a goal that you set your mind to meeting. Last week, um, it was the Duke City Marathon. Some of you might have uh, ran in that marathon. Danette pulled up a memory this week of her 10 years ago running in that race. And when she ran it, she had a goal of competing and completing the half marathon. So she she set her mind to that goal. And to be honest, Laura Cobb helped her set her mind to it. Laura gave Danette a plan, laid it out with timelines and goals, running this far by this time and then a little farther the next time. And then they would plan runs together on Saturdays where they would run longer and they would do it together. And of course, all of this led up to race day. And there was a plan for eating and drinking and stretching and walking and running, and then a plan for recovery. And all of this required time and attention and energy. Now, Paul has this kind of thing in mind when he says, set your mind. To set your mind on the flesh is to set the sum total of your interior dispositions on living out life in the realm of the flesh. Now, another way we might want to envision this is love. Like, what do you love? If you love something, you set your mind on that thing. It could be acquiring that thing. It could be keeping that thing. It could be placing yourself near or around or in the gravitational pull of that thing. Jamie Smith says, we are all out there aiming our loves by practices at some bullseye or target that we love. And then we do the stuff that shoots us, aims us at that target. So running, Danette would would be the first to tell you that she doesn't love running. It wasn't running that was her target. Now, I think part of her target here was her wanting to be in shape, and behind that target was something related to the way she feels about her body, and the hope was that she might become what she imagined herself to be. Now, I think, and I might be getting vulnerable here with her stuff, I kind of mentioned it to her, generally this morning, but I think she would say that 
that she feels more lovable when she looks like her ideal. So that is what she loved. And that's how then she set up liturgies and practices to have what she loved. Now the crazy thing here, friends, is like, The things we practice in this world, like prepping for a half marathon, those practices in and of themselves are rarely, if ever, neutral. Like the the practices we engage in are forming us and shaping us, and they aren't just neutral things that we can either take or not take for positive or not positive means. Like the very practice of your couch to half marathon app forms you and shapes you in the realm that you are living in. Like many of the things we do come preloaded with a vision of the good life that isn't neutral. And this is what Paul will call in other places the world, but it is the realm of the flesh. And there are practices in this realm that do something to us even when we are intending to use them for the good. And the tricky thing might be that you're thinking you're setting your mind on something in the realm of the spirit, but instead you get co-opted and you're actually living life in the flesh. And we can think of some things like juicy and controversial this morning. Let's have fun about it. Like politics. Like we Christians in the last 50 years have really attached ourselves to political engagement. We've become such an influential constituency that they have a name for us, the evangelicals. And if you aren't much of a church person, that term actually has morphed in the broader culture into a political term. So what was behind it? What was the vision of the good life or the thing we loved that got us, the church, evangelicals, on board with politics? Well, let's start with the good, like justice. We wanted justice and shalom for the unborn. We wanted good to come towards them. We wanted to use our power in the good sense for them. But then this morphed over time and became about rights, Rights for Christians to practice their faith. Again, not necessarily bad, like the right to free exercise of religion is in the Bill of Rights, but it morphed and suddenly got placed into a vision of the good life where we're seeking justice and power in our culture for our own sakes. Where we we find ourselves, we don't want to be unsettled by contrary narratives found in our pluralistic world where your free exercise of religion or a religion affects me and my practice, so I leverage my power to make sure my story wins. Again, the best of intentions maybe, but this is what can happen. We think we are in the realm of the spirit, but really we're in the realm of the flesh. We've been co-opted by this realm, and our good intentions have been morphed into self-interest and pride, and we set our minds on victory. At first, others may be but then ourselves. And if you follow the trail, the trail of time, energy, talents, and treasure, you get to the end of that trail, and what do you find? A throne. If you examine what do you think the good life is, and has this vision of the good life been co-opted by the realm of the flesh? 
Paul knows that the realm of the flesh and or spirit are to be the controlling apparatus of our lives. The mind set on the realm of the flesh, he says, ends where? In death. And so walking this path, cutting down this rut, patting down this ground, always ends where? In death. The result is always death. It always leads to death. Now let me give you a little bit more personal, perhaps. Let me give you a way how this plays out beyond marathons and something more meta like politics. For me, I too can live in the realm of the flesh, even as a minister. I have lots of things that are tempting to me. One is people-pleasing. Like, you might not know this about me, but I want every sermon I've ever preached and that you've ever heard to be the best sermon I've ever preached and you've ever heard. Now, it isn't always that in the driver's seat, but I recognize that reality in me. So for instance, especially early on as a pastor, if there was little or no feedback about my sermon, or if there were a few quips about the length of it and so on, I could feel on Sunday like a truck hit me. I don't know if I need to remind you that it is a pretty normal thing, not because of feedback, but the the loss of adrenaline in preaching is at the top of the list of all occupations. So it wasn't, but this, this wasn't just something physical. It was my vision of the good life that was driving me. It was me setting my mind on things of the flesh. Like, it's okay to want to preach good sermons and to have influence and impact through the preaching of God's word, but it's very easy to slip into this need to please people. And then when I don't get the desired feedback, praise, engagement, I feel deflated. I think, oh, that wasn't very good. Or I get nitpicky and ashamed. That was too long. You didn't say it the right way. Why can't you be more funny? And this produces in me anxiety. And then I go home and I get surly with my family, like sad and then irritable and then angry. And at the root of this is something that I love. And there are practices to get at what I love. And these are driven by self-reliance in the realm of the flesh not something good and holy, and I'm co-opted in these moments by something that lives in the realm of the flesh, not the realm of the spirit. And at the root of this is what we call something the false self. Now, if you think this is too modern or too psychology, then you can think of it as the the way the Bible says it, the old man, the old woman, your old humanity. Thomas Merton says it like this. There is a quote on one of these slides. Every one of us is shadowed by an illusionary person, a false self. We're not very good at recognizing illusions, least of all the ones we cherish about ourselves. Now, stop there for a second. Now, I mu- the, my false self in this illustration would be, I must be a good preacher to be loved. To be accepted, I must have a better body. To be loved and accepted, I must win. Because if I lose, then maybe what I believe is untrue. Or if they win, then we will be forgotten or lost. These are all illusions, by the way. Things we think are true, but aren't actually true. They are thoughts grounded in the old man, in the flesh. Now, Merton continues. Next slide, Josh. 
These illusions are the ones we are born with and which feed the roots of sin. For most of the people in the world, there is no greater reality. Hear this. For most people in the world, there is no greater reality than this false self. A life devoted to the cult of this shadow is what is called a life of sin or life in the flesh. And Paul will say this flesh, this false self, this old man is always hostile to God because it won't submit to God's law. And then Paul adds in verse 7, because it cannot. When we live in this realm of the false self, we cannot please God. Now hear what Paul is saying. A life lived in the flesh is a life that cannot please God because it is based on the illusion that I must do something, be something, have something, fix something, usher in something to be acceptable to God or to please him. And it is built on the self. In this realm, we live in a way that honors the made above the maker. We live in a way that condemns self and then consequently others, blames others and then exonerates the self, serves the self, loves the self over and against God and other selves. And when we do this, we live in a way that condemns self loathe self, and in this realm, we are in combat against God. So let's stop there for a second and do some inventory. What is your controlling apparatus? What is the narrative? What is the vision of the good life that you have that is controlling your life? Now, Here's how you tell. Next slide, Josh. Follow the trail of your time, your treasure, your talent, and your energy. And I could add to that attention. Each of these is a stone that cuts a path, that puts you on a trail, that leads to a throne. What's at the end? Is it being a good mom? Is it being the hero of your family? Is it saving someone, being needed by someone? Is it being recognized in your field, being recognized as the smartest person in the room? Is it having the money you need to help people and be comfortable? Is it your children achieving their goals, dreams, aspirations? Is it being perfect? Is it serving and being needed, having friends and good conversations, experiences and making memories where you have no conflict or peace in your home? How will you know? One way is to gauge your anxiety, by the way. Anxiety in these moments is what Steve Cuss calls a gift because it serves as an early detection device that your false self is at work. Paul will say, life in the spirit leads to life in peace. Life in the flesh leads to anxiety. And anxiety is a detection device 
that your, self is at, your false self is at work. Like when you don't get credit for something you did, or when you maybe you get credit, but it's the wrong kind of credit, like you get demerits for what you didn't do right. And in that moment, you hear the voice of disappointment, and you become anxious, and that anxiety quickly morphs into quiet anger. Detection device, alarm, danger, Will Robinson. Like, you're living in the false self. Or in your home, you're always picking up for everyone in your pursuit to be a good mom or have a neat and tidy home. And so when things are a mess, you get anxious. And you can hear your mom saying to you, everything has a place. (laughs) These are usually all good things, by the way, that we're pursuing. But what happens in this realm of the fresh, like my need for affirmation becomes a dark need. I construct my life around the praise of others, their validation, and people just becomes a, a means to an end of my getting it. And this always leads to death, death to freedom, death to healthy relationships, death to reputation. It also leads to condemnation, sin, death, exhaustion, and shame. And some of us in this room are so tired today because we're like hamsters on this wheel, cutting a path in the realm of the flesh and not getting what we want. And when we hit our alarms and the phones in the morning, we get up and do it again. And your kids don't thank you for something you did. And it's like a bomb goes off in the middle of your mind. Paul finishes saying that life in the flesh, verse 9, is living in a place where Christ does not belong to him. Now let's tease this out. Why does Paul say this? Christ came and died to free me and you from our need from approval from any group. Now, this is no small freedom, by the way, because this has been at one level a controlling principle from day one. This is the power of sin. All the things I need to be okay to be seen as the smartest, the funniest, the wisest, the rightest person in the room... I need validation at any cost, and when I get it, my need is never satiated, only increases. Christ broke that power. It's no small power that Christ would break that power. It's been a controlling narrative from day one of my life. Christ has come and broken the chain of that power in me and consequently in you. So when I choose to revisit the realm of the flesh and live here and devote my time, energy, talents, and attention to it, Christ's death does not belong to me. Like, I am choosing something else. And this is why martyrdom is such a powerful narrative for many of us. Like the anxiety that is produced in us from not getting the approval of our spouse, our kids, our boss, our parents, sends us into the martyrdom narrative, where we will self-righteously die a thousand deaths and make sure everyone knows about our sacrifices, if we don't, if, and if not, know by our words, and if not by our words, then our nonverbal cues, our sighs, that when you pick up another sock, you make sure everyone in the room knows the death you are dying for them. Like we do this, and it is a substitute for Jesus' death. Our death becomes this thing we want everybody to know about. Because life in the flesh demands death. 
Christ has died it for you. And he's freed you from all your martyrdom. Christ is our primary need. He frees us from our need for validation. We are accepted on the basis of his merits alone. By this gift of grace, we are made okay. We are guaranteed that we are loved and accepted. We are freed from finding worth and validation outside of Jesus. And as we rest on this and on his work and his words about us, we get Jesus. And Jesus then belongs to us in this very intimate and personal way. Like your false self gets filled with his life. And you are transferred from a path that leads to death to a path that leads to life. And this is the message. Jesus died so I don't have to seek my approval in sermons anymore. Now, don't get me wrong. Jesus died for sin and rebellion. But this is how we live in sin and rebellion. Most of us aren't out living in sin and rebellion in very active, seen ways. It's these ways. It's our self-righteousness. It's our gossip. It's our finding approval in what men and women think about us. Jesus died, so... I don't have to preach the perfect sermon. And Jesus died so you don't have, all your sacrifices for your children don't have to be recognized. And Jesus died so you don't have to get your parents' approval. And Jesus died so you don't have to have the perfect body. And Jesus died so we don't have to win the culture war or another argument. I don't have to make everyone laugh and I don't have to know the best music or all the facts about COVID, or be the most well-read. Now, books and humor and clean houses can become ways to serve people and find enjoyment, but it can also be something that feeds the false self, and the false self never leads to life. It always leads to exhaustion and anxiety. And friends, God has forged a new path in Jesus that leads to life and peace, and that's what Paul calls life in the Spirit. So that's the last point, life in the Spirit, living in the realm of Jesus. What's interesting here in verse 9 is Paul shifts from third person to second. You, y'all, y'all aren't in this realm. Let that soak over you. Just like two weeks ago I said, there is therefore now no condemnation. Let the word soak over you. Y'all aren't in the realm of the flesh. Y'all are in the realm of the spirit. You are in the true self world. You are in the world of no condemnation. Christ has been given to redeem and remake you. Paul is reminding us that this is who we are, and you are to set your mind first. If you're going to set your mind on the things of the Spirit, that's where it starts. You're setting your mind on who you have been remade to be. You're not condemned, and you aren't in the realm of the flesh, but you're in the realm of the Spirit. 
What are the things of the Spirit? What are the things that bring life? What are the things that bring peace? Well, Galatians 5 helps shed some light. Paul says in Galatians 5, But I say, walk in the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Skip down to 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ, remember that what Paul says, Christ belongs to you, and you belong to Christ. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. First notice, Paul says, you're not under law, but grace. The underlying principle of cutting a path in the Spirit is the law won't get you there, only grace will. And it always comes as a gift, and it always comes objectively from outside of you. And it's merit-based, but not on your merits, on another's merits. And we constantly, as the people of God, forget the gospel. So setting your mind on the Spirit is the very fact that the Spirit comes to you by gift, given to you as you are wandering in the realm of the flesh. And when you are rescued, how you are still prone to wander into that realm. We want to live in that world, but the setting our minds on the things of the Spirit is to remind us that we are in the Spirit and the Spirit is in us. And that is the realm that we are now made for. And we are to live in the world of the flesh with the Spirit. Like, that's the weird thing. It's like what I described to you as when I was in China and gathering in homes as Americans. Now, I don't use China in any way to say negative or positive, but as an example of what it means to exist in two realms at the same time. Like, we have been ushered out of the realm of the Spirit, into, or out of the realm of the flesh into the realm of the Spirit, but we still exist in all around us in this realm even though we've been transferred into another. We still live around us. Everything that is forming and shaping us or trying to in this realm is of the flesh. But God has called us in the spirit to a different realm, and that is where we truly are meant to reside. That is our true destination. The true self is born at the foot of the cross, receiving mercy and grace. And so setting our mind on the Spirit begins here. The Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son as a gift to remind us of our need of the gospel over and over and over again, to bring us back to that again and again and again. And so setting your mind on the Spirit begins there. And then it's the fruits, the works, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. As we live a life grounded in the gospel, fruit is produced in us. We don't have to be like Paul Tripp, that famous illustration that he used. Like We don't have to be outside stapling live fruit to dead trees anymore. Like As we rely on Christ, fruit is produced in us. These fruits, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The mind set on the Spirit agrees with the Spirit that this is in fact a good thing, that this is in fact the thing I most need, that I most need to be reminded again and again that my merit is found in Christ in the gospel. And then as I meditate on that, as I set my mind on that, as I come back to worship week in, week out to hear that, as I eat that at the table of communion, as I see it in baptism produced over and over again, that this is a gift of grace that comes to me that I don't merit it. I have nothing in myself that deserves it. 
As I live out of that place, that I can't do this on my own, I need Christ's life surging through me, fruit gets produced. Goodness and gentleness get produced in us. We, we can come to a place where we deny ourselves instead of feeding ourselves. Spirit is the means by which we can have life and peace, the means by which we can die to self, the means by which we can produce fruit, the fruit of kindness, instead of stapling what might look like kindness to a dead tree. The Spirit produces it. And when you feel guilty and condemned by your struggles, the Spirit assures you that Christ's blood covers you. The Spirit reminds you of the affection of the Father. When you feel burdened and crushed by life's pain, the Spirit comforts you and helps you. The Spirit is a refuge for you, so much so that Jesus said it is better for us that he has gone to heaven to reign so that the Spirit can come. When you feel disconnected from God and full of doubt, the Spirit can break through your stony heart and give you life again. There is always the hope of renewal because you are in the Spirit. The Spirit can wake you up, that means, on a Sunday like today, even when you came in here bored out of your mind, sad that you were at church. In that moment, the Spirit can just show up on you and wake you up to the reality of God's good word. And when you're afraid and weak, the Spirit groans. We'll talk about this in the next couple weeks. The Spirit groans along with you, prays for you, encourages you in the truth and in the life of Jesus. Be confident, church. Be assured. If you fling yourself into the arms of Jesus, the Spirit is with you. And if you have transferred your trust to Jesus, the Spirit is here right now for you. And you could not be more loved. And so set your mind on the things of the Spirit is the flourishing life that the Spirit alone can give. Cut that path in worship, reading the Bible, serving others, giving sacrificially. Cut that path of dying to self with your eyes fixed on Jesus. Cut that path and walk in the Spirit. Lastly, I want you to think about prayer. Stopping to pray is a simple and tangible way to change paths, to cut a path out of the realm of the flesh and in the realm of the spirit. Uh, Eugene Peterson says, prayer is the way we work our way out of the comfortable but cramped world of the self into the spacious world of God. This life in the spirit is something we participate in today And it's something that will become more fully realized later. Like, it's a mixed bag and fullness will come. And how do we know? And this is where we end today. How do we know all of this? Well, Paul says it right here. Because Christ has been raised. In other words, did the Spirit give life to Christ? If he did, he will give life to you. For the spirit of Christ dwells in you. Don't miss the wonder of this. God wants his spirit to 
dwell in us objectively and experientially. God wants to live within us. The Spirit unites us to the objective work of Christ's atonement in your life. The Spirit integrates and internalizes the work of Christ in us so we can respond with faith. So much so that what is said of Christ is said of you. He dies for you and dwells in you and the Spirit actualizes that work of Christ in you. You are now controlled by the Spirit. The Spirit has been sent to give you confidence and a sure hope. The Spirit is a more compelling agent of life, a more compelling agent than the sin living in me. You have been placed into Christ. This is your new dwelling. The old regime is no longer your regime. It's no longer your place of residence. Christ is in you by the, by the Spirit. You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. And if Christ is in you, even if your body will die because of sin, that same spirit who dwelled with Christ and raised him from the dead will also give life to your mortal bones. And this is our guarantee. This is our hope. I was reminded of a plaque that a Christian oncologist had placed in his office. It said, cancer. He said, cancer is so limited. Cancer cannot cripple love. It cannot shatter hope. It cannot corrode faith. It cannot destroy peace. It cannot kill friendship. It cannot silent courage. It cannot invade the soul. It cannot steal eternal life. It cannot conquer the Holy Spirit. Replace that. Replace cancer with with any of the things that you think you need for the good life. Replace it with any fear you might have right now. COVID is so limited, it cannot cripple love, it cannot shatter hope, it cannot corrode faith, it cannot destroy peace, it cannot kill friendship, it cannot silent courage, it cannot invade the soul, it cannot steal eternal life, it cannot conquer the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus has risen and given us his spirit of resurrection, we have been given an an ability to see our futures. There will be no more pain, no more medication, no more surgeries. We'll finally operate at our full capacity so that about five minutes into heaven, you and I will turn to each other and say, uh, heart attack, catastrophic car accident, nuclear war. Does anybody even remember that stuff? Well, it doesn't matter because here we are. Everything we lose in this world, God will restore through the Spirit. So with the Spirit in you now, you and I have nothing to fear, and that power is real. And so Romans 8, 1 through 11 carries the power of the gospel into every breath. So let us, church, hoist our sails, catch that wind, and let the breath take us wherever it will. Let's pray. God, we ask that your love, which is sure for us, like this morning, If this all seems too good to be true, I pray that you would open our hearts to it. That you will help us. That's what you're good at, God. That you, because Christ has been raised, because the Spirit has been placed into the resurrected Christ and resurrected him, so too that is our hope for everything. Resurrection is our hope. It is our power. And it's real now and it's real later. And we are called to live into that by faith this morning as we Cut a path in the Spirit. So I pray that you would help us to do that. Even now, by coming forward in a line, that we would cut a path to this altar and we'd 
stick our hands out once again and ask you to fill it. And that we would believe that this is what the resurrection does, is it brings to us the filling nature of God. Give us the fullness of God. I pray that we would experience that in a small piece of bread and a shot glass of juice and wine this morning. We ask this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.